Welcome to Obehave, the behavioral science podcast from Ogilvy Change. One of the first things I noticed when I first discovered behavioral science was that when I gave talks about marketing and advertising, I got invited to marketing and advertising conferences. When I started talking about behavioral economics, I got invited to 10 Downing Street. Hi, I'm Julia Steenforth. And I'm Maddie Croucher. And we're the hosts of this podcast and editors of the Overhead blog. This week, I spoke with Andrew Sheeran of Terrible Games about the psychological strength of games to subvert power, the theory of play, and why the slightly twisted history of Monopoly causes him some distress. Andrew is a radical board game designer who explores a range of social and political subjects through board games. He works primarily on the design and theory of the games, but has also amassed various interesting accounts of the ways in which his games are being used. Everything from universities using them as an educational tool to soldiers playing them on the front line. We start with Andrew talking about his first board game and the rather charged media reaction. It was a little accidental at first because it all started with this game, War on Terror, the board game, which I um, designed with my best friend who I was living with at the time, Bradley Matt Tompkins. And it, it was really started off as a sort of act of private protest almost. It was on the eve of the Iraq War, and we, we were feeling kind of pretty powerless and um, just in disbelief, really, that this thing was happening. Uh, and we'd been on the marches, you know, we'd, we'd written to our MP, we'd done all the things that you're meant to do in a democratic society to say, well, not in my name, don't want to do this, don't agree with it, not right. Um, and as we were watching the news reports, um, we were sort of watching sort of old allies becoming enemies, enemies becoming allies, and this sort of white, willful amnesia of recent history, it, it started to feel a bit like a game because um, the hypocrisy was so, it, it, was, it was so rampant, and yet it wasn't being that widely reported. It was almost as if we knew that they knew that we knew it's all a bit of a it's all a bit of a, um, a smokescreen, but never mind, we're just going to have this little war and then it will end up fine. So, so we started designing the game that War and Terror would be if, it, if everything was taken literally, if it had George Bush's view of the world, you know, if the map of the world looked like George Bush saw it, if it was really um, representing the things that George Bush said that this war was about, good and being black and white in terms, um, terrorism being a sort of amorphous evil blob just can never reason with, um, and it's it's just there. You just have to deal with it. Who knows where it came from? You just have to fight it because we're the good guys. So so we designed that game. It was it was kind of it was kind of the world as seen through the eyes of of the propagators of the war on terror. Um, but rather than it being a traditional war game where you line up your armies and fight, we made the war on terror more about the sort of backroom, slightly Machiavellian decision decision making that, that inevitably takes place. And it, it turned out to be a really interesting game. Right from the very first play tests, we, we knew we were onto something 
we didn't know we were ever going to publish it and get it made. That was like far off. But we just had this feeling like, wow, this is a bit more than a game. You know, we, we, it's, it's echoing real life in a really uncanny way. People are coming away from it to slightly transform. Or at the very least, people are able to play this and talk about a taboo subject, which back then terrorism really was a taboo subject. And they're able to talk about it very freely within the confines of the game. And that carried on after the game just passed away as well. So so that gave us a bit of a clue that although we started it as a little bit of a joke, there was something more serious there. And the games could be used for um, for quite progressive things. Yeah, you you mentioned how it had there was sort of an unanticipated adoption of the game actually in the real war on terror that it was being played on the on the front lines and having an effect that yeah. I I guess you wouldn't have anticipated beforehand and if you could elaborate a little bit more on that and maybe delve into what do you think the psychology behind that is really yes yeah, so, I mean that was absolutely crazy so so sort of for fast forward a few years um, because we, we developed it for many years um, and, and we really put a lot of sort of care and research into it it, it, it wasn't something that is there was a game we, we weren't taking it lightly we wanted it to really represent the things that we, that we were that we were feeling and we wanted it to be a proper examination of the subject even though it was a game so so when it was finally released um i talk about this a lot in the talk there was a lot of backlash you know we got the death threats and and people threatened to um use new anti-terror laws against us saying that we were promoting terrorism and police confiscated some games and got seized at customs, things like that. Um, but all of that, we we almost anticipated, we knew it was going to be controversial to have a board game called War on Terror. Mm-hmm. Just the title. One. Yeah, exactly. Just the very title was quite controversial. Um, and the fact that we included a balaclava in the box as well. These were all things that we did quite deliberately not not to cause controversy but to um, to, to to incite a discussion around the, the subject um but what we could never have predicted was that as you say it kind of got adopted on the front lines of the very war that we were satirizing so the first thing we noticed was that um serving troops were ordering this game and it was being flown out to uh, Iraq and Afghanistan. And we were getting pictures of soldiers playing it in the green zones there. Um, and if that weren't enough, we started getting emails from soldiers saying, uh, you know, thanks for making this game. Playing it has made me question what I'm doing here. And that, that really sort of messed with us a bit because um, we, we didn't really know how to feel about our game being used as entertainment within the context of the war itself. It, 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 it no longer felt subversive. And, and, and then this happened and, and, and we, we kind of thought, well, this is odd. These people are fighting war and terror during the day and they're coming back to the green zone. And they're playing a game representation of the war they've just been fighting. And 
it's the game representation of the war that's making them think twice. It's, you know, what, what's what's going on here? And to to, to answer your point about the, the psychology behind that, um, I, I think it's got a lot to do with um, with the, the theory of play and, and the state we enter into when we play, um, which a, a, a Dutch um, so a social historian, Johan Hiesinger, wrote about um, in, in the 1930s, he, he wrote a similar work called Homo Ludens, which posited that, that mankind essentially is, is, is a playful animal above all else, and, and, that, um, and that culture is, is dependent on, on play, the play centrist culture. Uh, and he coined this term the magic circle, and the, the idea of the magic circle is this um, theoretical protective space that we enter into voluntarily when we play a game. And the, the importance of, of this protective space is, is that it, it follows certain rules that you all agree to, even though you don't realize you're agreeing to rules before the game starts. Rules have started even at the moment where you say, let's play a game. And some of the most important rules are um, that in, inside the magic circle, there are going to be more rules which don't necessarily obey the real rules of the of the outside world. So it's distinct from the outside world. Secondly, very importantly, is that everything ends as it begins. So once the game is over and it's packed away, everything is, is as it was before. And and those rules allow you to examine whatever you do in, in that moment, in, in that game scenario, whatever it is, you can do it quite safely and with liberty, knowing that you, you aren't going to transgress any normal social rules because you've been allowed, you've been given this license to do whatever you want in, in this sort of social sandpit. Um, and in the case of War and Terror, I think it allowed people to engage it in a certain amount of dark play. That is, it allowed people to um, uh, to Look, look at this taboo subject through a certain lens, allow them to role play it, allow them to see, well, what, what is it like to be George Bush or Tony Blair? What's it like um, to, to fund terrorism, uh, to achieve short-term strategic goals? And, and without fear of the usual social repercussions that would come with those sort of questions or those sort of actions if you were to just bring it up at a dinner party, for example. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Versus, because loads has been, would have been written at the time in newspapers and just critical opinion pieces, all of that, or debates even, uh, that politicians were having, but never would they have been able to have the opportunity to put down their actual real world stance and experience it from a different perspective. Um, no, definitely not. Um, and that, that's generally the power of role play. And, and I guess all games have, have elements of role play in them. Elements of simulation and role play, and, and those are really powerful tools when you combine them with with a subject that is um, suppressed. And, and, and I would say, still and certainly at the time, uh, the idea of terrorism, what causes it, what its aims are, things like that. I, I remember it was even taboo to suggest that um, that Al Qaeda had had goals, let alone political goals. You know that. That was just off the table. It, the, the narrative, the dominant narrative was, um, these guys are monsters, they can't be reasoned with, therefore the only language is bombs. And 
this game enable people to to completely ignore the dominant narrative and to actually look at what else was going on. They may come away with the same conclusion at the end, but at least they've had a chance in the interim to, uh, to, to push these buttons and test certain things. Um, and yeah, like I say, a lot of people in, in our playtest came away um, thinking different things, feeling different things, and, and we've certainly got a number of, of quite moving letters from people who had really changed their world through, through playing a board game, as weird as that sounds. But from this experience that you've had, I, I wouldn't be surprised if you would be in favor of adopting uh, serious play or board games in very serious contexts on a more broad social level, where, where when discussing or debating these topics, taking taking this approach of using a board game, uh, am I am I wrong? Yeah. In, in... <laughs> no, no, certainly. I mean, I think. Again, I wouldn't have envisaged this, but War on Terror ended up in, in those sort of spaces. It, it ended up in university syllabuses, uh, not just on subjects related to games or game design, but international relations, and those, those sort of uh, modules. And it ended up in, it is in the permanent collection of museums like the Imperial War Museum, the uh, Museum of Childhood, Bodleian Library, things like that. Um, and and I think done done right, it it, it is a very valuable uh, I don't want to say educational tool because that instantly saps the fun out of it. Games do have to be fun, but it's certain, it it's it. I think games should be considered more um, within within the toolkit of uh, of pedagogy, if you, if you like, or, or um, just um, a, a general um, sort of looking at, at difficult subjects, but they're incredibly well suited to doing that because of their interactive element, because of this sort of this idea of the magic circle that they protect the world by. Um, so I'm, I'm not arguing in any sense for the primacy of games to do that, although it, it does have to be said that something about War on Terror, the board game, was able to cut through where, where a film or a book arguably wouldn't. Right? I think if we if we had distilled all our ideas that we put into the board game and published it as a book, it, it certainly would have been ignored uh, or, you know, maybe added to the thrown in bookshelves or waterstones under the terrorism section at, at the very best. It, it, it certainly wouldn't have the effect that it did have. So, so yeah, I, I think um, game, games in general need to be taken more seriously. Mm -hmm. They don't have to be more serious, but they have to be taken more seriously because they, they have this ability, they have this power to really uh, change people's perceptions by, by offering, them, offering them the potential to, to look at the world differently. Well, exactly. It sounds like almost there's just a branding issue around play and games because it's so easily associated with childhood and children and it can't possibly tackle serious right. subjects. Um, I was interested in I, what you said. Hmm? I know I, I was just going to add, it, it just occurred to me that at the same time that there's a bit of a, a, a conflict because uh, as I said part of the power of games lies in its uh, in, in the general perception that they are trivial and they're trivializing. Uh, so in some ways, you don't want to elevate games to the to 
the stage where people expect of them mm-hmm. um, something as as profound as a philosophical treatise, for example, because it, it it will undo the natural subversion that play has. You know, play being spontaneous, frivolous, joyful, all, all of those elements have to be retained. Mm-hmm. Even even naive in some way, I think that those are really important characteristics that have to be retained. So I, I would be dead against a sort of a systemic um, approach to using games in school, but where it was being done simply because of fashion or or, or because uh, of, of these one or two examples where like, the games were able to achieve something that other traditional methods could. Mm-hmm. I think it has to be done with caution. So, yeah, with caution, that's interesting. You mentioned that earlier as well. If done correctly or done done right, they have this huge power. Uh, what is there an ethical or sort of a, a, a guideline or a, a caution? I mean, I mean certainly there, there are uh, there's ethical elements to, to everything, but um, you can certainly do this incorrectly. The, there are numerous examples of uh, games and gamification which are simply the slapping of rather cheap psychological books on, on top of on top of something else. In the game design world, it's often called chocolate flavored broccoli. Whereas you're, you're just sort of you're putting something on top to encourage people to, to swallow something that they really don't want to. Um, one of the um, key Characteristics of the game is that it's voluntary. Mm-hmm. So Interestingly, that there are examples that go against that, but it, in, it generally Proof speaking, the rule. Yeah, <laughs> it, games should, like people need, have to want to play a game, and and just like just like people learn differently, and people have different tastes in what they read or, or, or how they learn and the speed they learn. People have different tastes in games, so you, so there, there definitely wouldn't be a one size fits all. Quite skeptical of, of these um, very trendy sort of uh, colleges that, that pop up saying that their entire curriculum is basically is taught through games or, or something like that. I, I have no idea how that could be achieved really without a huge amount of effort, without continual updates and change to the, to the types of games that you, uh, that you use because you're, you're going to exclude people just use games. Just just as you're going to exclude people if you just use sort of um, memory rote learning. Mm-hmm. So, so so that's what I mean by it. it needs to be used with caution. Just, just because it's just because it's powerful and the temptation is there to um, to, to to use that power for good. It, it shouldn't just be the the only thing that people go to. Yeah, it seems like a fairly. Uh reasonable approach really um especially when thinking about education and stuff like that one size doesn't yeah, fit exactly. all diversification yeah. is the way to include as yeah. many yeah, as possible yeah. yeah um so it's clear one of your areas of interest is this uh is exploring a way to subvert power through the the power of games um yeah. you mentioned briefly at nudge stop a couple things you're working on um, I, I'd be really interested in hearing a little bit more about some of your your protest games that might be right. in the yeah. works. Yeah, so uh, I mean, we, we spent many years um, trying to tackle these really big, weighty subjects because I don't know, it, they felt like they they needed tackling somehow. And then 
Um, they, they were taking sort of three years to, to design and develop. Uh, it was a lot of time and effort. Um, and, and then we started getting commissions from people who wanted games designed. These were sort of charities or, or schools, colleges that wanted games to tackle a very specific subject. And uh, that, that sort of opened our eyes a bit, actually, to to the idea that oh, games have, have a power as well as just kind of change, trying to change people's minds on a big subject, to change people's perceptions in a very small area of life. But if it's a very um, if it's a fundamental area of life or a very common thing that's, that's encountered, then that change in perception can lead on to other far greater Changes. So um, we were spending a lot of time um, with activists, um, and we realised that activists face a number of problems when when organising actions or protests or, or whatever it is, and all of these problems are in addition to the numerous obstacles that are placed in their way to the state, and those are being added to every year, it's become harder and harder to engage with the protest that's been criminalized, that's been marginalized. So that, I mean, I just, for example, I, I remember it in, in my youth <laughs> as, as, as a kid, before I really understood, I, I, my dad took me along to CND rallies, and these things used to be very much sort of open to, to everyone. And now you have to kind of be careful if you don't go to a protest. Um, you, you think twice before taking your family to a large protest. What, what we sort of focused on was it'd be great if we could come up with some games that was that dealt with protest and the and the challenges that were encountered in protest to help people. And at that time that we started this, there was um, a tactic being used by the police called kettling. Um, and for those people listening who, who are familiar with the term, Kathleen is a controversial police tactic where they corral indiscriminate large numbers of people on the streets and hold them, maybe for hours or less. Um, and it's a, it's a sort of a form of crowd control. Um, that's certainly how it's legitimized by the police. But actually, it, it's more, I, I see it as more a sense of um, collective punishment. I think it's as much to deal with the protest in hand as it is to send out a message to anyone considering protest which says, look, even if you're going to come down as, as a peaceful protest, maybe with your family, it doesn't matter. If you're in the wrong place at the wrong time, you're going to end up potentially killed and you won't have access to the toilet, to medicine, shade, shelter, whatever you need because you're, you're stuck with the police let you go. Um, and we, we thought it'd be great if you could turn this situation, this very stressful, conflict-ridden situation, from something that was antagonizing to something that was joyous. And so we started off, uh, the first game, protest game we made was Metakettle. And Metakettle is a, is a physical game to be played inside a kettle while you're being kettled until you're not being kettled anymore. And the, the action of the game involves, um, Reenacting the kettle inside the kettle, so it's like a playground game. You sort of join arms with people, and you, um, you each have each team has an animal name, a 
run around shouting at animal names, trying to kettle other animals. And then eventually, if everyone's playing it, everyone gets kettled. And at that point, you realize that the police won because they're the right kettle and then you start again. But um, the dissemination kind of, of that, that of, the, of the rules of the game might, might just be uh, aided through social media or something like that. Yeah, it's no, exactly. Spontaneously yeah. having everybody in the kettle know about it. Yeah, that's, that's one of the challenges. And, and I think I, I, I don't know of an example of meta kettle being played in the context that it's meant to be played in. And that's interesting for a start because it doesn't, it doesn't have the same power. And yet, another interesting thing about Metacadu is that it doesn't actually need to be played to, um, to convey some of the benefits of the game. Because simply knowing that a game called Metacadu exists means that if you were to be caught on a kettle, then you also know there's a possibility of a game of Metacadu arising. And then that changes this conflict situation into a play situation. And that also has ramifications for, well, what are you doing there? Are you being detained involuntarily? Or are you in fact playing voluntarily? And if you really embrace the spirit of the game, and if everyone embraces the spirit of the game, then what you discover is that the only people who are there in voluntarily are the police in the first place who have created the conditions for the game to arise. So the police then become play facilitators rather than um, violent embodiment of the, of the state's power. So, 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 so this is a game in which just the existence of it can help change perceptions of your, of your immediate environment. Um, but yeah, you're, you're right, we, we need to find um, um, a way to make sure everyone knows about this game so that next time a kettle, um, meta kettle can just spring up like little play flowers and, and blossom. How beautiful is that? Yeah, I know. What a vision. Exactly. Um, and then... And, yeah, go on. No, I was just going to ask about the, your solitaire game as well, which is a yeah, fascinating so, um, concept. So, so we, we were looking at different aspects of, of protest and, and detention. And, and each, each possible type of detention seemed to require a different game. Um, and so the next thing we kind of set uh, ourselves as a task was, um, wouldn't it be great if you could have a game of solitaire for solitary confinement? That, that was like the, the design brief we wrote ourselves, solitaire for solitary confinement. So that means um, something that can occupy yourself, um, which doesn't use any cards or pieces and can just be played out on your fingers. Um, it doesn't have to be for political prisoners who are in solitary confinement, but that was sort of our target audience in mind. You know, it could be anyone who has to deal with solitude. So that's something that's in development, actually. Um, we, we develop rules, we, we, we've got something that uses um, the, the lyrics of a, of a song or a phrase from a nursery rhyme or something like that. Um, to to act as a, like a, a, rand, a randomizer um, because if you lots of people carry around in their heads uh, various lyrics may be incomplete but it doesn't really matter but you have these sort of strings of words in your head that you can pull out that you're only kind of vaguely conscious of and once you've got that you have you have the elements of something to play with you've got 
say you're going to write them either. And then you can do things with it. You can identify certain words, you can count words, you can count um, letters, and so on. So, so we've got this um, this rule set that I've been testing uh, on my partner's um, son because the, the 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 key thing about this is that you have to be able to tell it to someone, and they have to be able to know how to play it and memorize it forever immediately. That's how simple it needs to be. And yet, within that, it needs to contain enough replayability that you that it keeps you occupied. So it's no good having this game that's so complicated that when you finally get locked up, you're like, oh no, what was that game again? Was it the first finger on the sixth toe? Or, you know, so... Um, a rather frustrating experience might ensue. Yeah, exactly. It's going to add to your stress, if anything. <laughs> um, so yeah, so it, it, once a week, I kind of... Um, I, I, there's uh, it's named River, and I, I ask him what the rules of the game are, if he can still remember them teach them back to me then when there's success there's success so um getting closer so would, yeah yeah getting close but what i need is sort of access to um to the people that it's really meant to benefit mm -hmm. uh, so I've, I've done a bit of reading about it myself and um and i've incorporated elements that might help so for example the uh, using things like lyrics or nursery rhymes that they they help anchor you to the outside world they take you out of yourself, they employ memory. Um, so, so I've got things like that in that, that I think would be useful. Mm -hmm. um, but I just need, uh, I need testers really. So if but any I'm, of your listeners happen to... Um, be in solitary confinement? If you're in solitary confinement, get in touch. <laughs> um, if you've been in solitary confinement, get in touch. No, uh, but no, yeah, seriously. Um, it's, it's a, this is one of those projects that, um, that can't achieve them. Um, I thought uh, for an episode on games, it might be suitable to end on one of the probably the most famous games that might come to mind. Uh, Rory actually raised the question at the end of Nudgestock, but I don't think I he managed to get get a full answer. But he had a comment about Monopoly, and yeah. you you might have some thoughts on that game. Yeah, yeah, I do. Yeah, um, so so Rory's comment was that it this can sometimes backfire, and and he's right and. And he mentioned Monopoly as, as one of the examples of um, um, a, a good intent backfiring. And Monopoly is a sort of ghost that haunts me because um, is quite right. It was not the game that we know originally. It was invented by Elizabeth McGee, uh, who she really was a radical ballgame designer, uh, like through and through. Uh, I, I just I borrowed the term because someone else called it, but she was a radical board game designer. Um, and she designed this game called the Landlords Game in 1903. And, and quite deliberately, when writing about it, you know, she, she wrote something like, you know, let, let the children see the, the injustice of the world. And when they grow up, they will remedy this evil. It's pretty much what, what she wrote. She had this in mind from the beginning. And her, her intent with the Landlords Game was to show the injustices of land ownership. It, it was, to all intents and purposes, an anti-capitalist game. It, it, it was a George's game. We, we would understand it as an anti-capitalist game. And it was showing that the owning class were getting richer progressively more and more at the expense of the renting class. And people complain today about it being really unfair and it causes arguments and it's brutal. That's absolutely designed in the game. It's meant to be. 
that it's meant to be so brutal as to put you off that very system that the current game celebrates so much. So the the cruel irony in, in Monopoly is that um, eventually she sold the patent to the Parker Brothers in, I think, 1935. For pittance, by the way. Ah, does that drive with her anti-capitalist position where... I, yeah, I mean, I, I'm not an expert on history of Monopoly. I, I, I know she fought to hang on to the patent. Um, I know that other versions, other copies of the game were were leaking out. Uh, I think Parker Brothers already had something in production that was Monopoly. Who, who knows what the exact facts are around uh, selling the patent, maybe a house force. Maybe $500 to her, you know, back then. I say it was a pittance, but actually maybe she thought I could use that to make Landlord's Game 2. I'm sure what she couldn't have foreseen is that her idea in itself would be subverted and that the game today would be used to actually prepare children for the um, the cruel injustices of the world and, and things like including card readers into the game, coaxing children to sort of get into play debt in preparation for your uh, for your lifelong struggle of living in debt um, is is really uh, very difficult to swallow. So yeah, I, I do worry that, you know, years to come people will be playing War and Terror, purely unironically celebrating the devastation and destruction that they are, that they are that's the risk with any creative endeavor right? mm-hmm. once you once you release it it's not yours anymore yeah and in fact that that again that's one of the great things about games is that uh, more than any other creative medium it invites that it's, it's interactive you're mm-hmm. meant to make it your own come up with your own rules no, like no one plays with the monopoly rules everyone plays with house rules free parking and, not It's a bad belongs to already boring game. <laughs> True. <Stop the drop. laughs> but uh, though I do wonder with, with Monopoly if it's not simply the fundamental attribution error where the reason we keep playing is because we'll attribute the the misfortune to your personal failings. Had I only done it slightly differently, and that's just hardwired into into humans. And it, it'll you'll have to do some serious engineering to yeah. to get over that part. Yeah, no, for, I mean, I think um, maybe if McGee knew what was going to happen, uh, then then she wouldn't have made the starting point level. She wouldn't have made it that because you're right. That makes people think that they have an illusion of control, and you you don't blame the system as such for your for you're in, you, you, you blame maybe um, your own bad luck or your own inability to control what you've been given. Um, so, yeah, we, we did another, um, I, I should mention actually some of the games on, on our website are completely free and they're just PDFs, you can download them. And, and, and one of these games um, is a Taken Snakes and Ladders that tries to, it tries to address this. It's, it's Snakes and Ladders. Um, as envisaged by John Rawls, um, looking at the veil of ignorance sort of term, and, and it allows people to start at different points within the grid and to see how they behave and on what, what role they could give where they've been placed on that grid. 
so yeah, if you're interested in that, try. Uh, I think it's called In It Together. Great. I enjoyed chatting with Andrew and want to thank him for taking the time to do this interview. We've been talking a lot about lateral thinking at Ogilvy Change this year, and it seems to me board games are an excellent way to tap into our ability to think about a topic in a totally different way. Andrew is keen to connect with people to test and develop his games. Specifically, he's looking for testers for his Solitaire for Solitary Confinement game, and he's also developing an interesting idea for an escape room that doesn't rely on puzzles, but rather uses people, and it's about people solving. So if you have any experience or expertise in either of those two areas, do please get in touch. The best way is probably through Twitter, at Terrible Games, or directly through the website terriblegames.co.uk, where you can also download a range of games, including In It Together, the slightly twisted version of Snakes and Ladders Andrew mentioned at the end of the chat. If you want to keep updated with the work Andrew's doing, you can follow him on Twitter, at Ability, And as for us, you can follow at Ogilvy Change on Twitter and like us on Facebook. A member of the Ogilvy Change team posts every week on the Obehave blog, o-behave.tumblr.com, about something interesting we found in the world of behavioural science. And finally, we'd like to thank our sponsors Sound Lounge, enabling advertisers to use music in more powerful ways. Special thanks to Ruth Simmons for introducing us to the world of sound branding, and Julian Goodkind for managing the music origination and production for this show. Thanks for listening. <laughs>